today is the last Sunday for you to give to Compact Family Ministries, Hillcrest uh, Crest Home, a family uh, ministries. We've been showing videos, but we're going to have a, a live presentation of someone who is directly connected to the ministry that you've been uh, donating to and uh, continue to, to do that today. You can, uh, anytime you can write a check for that ministry, it's an incredible ministry. And it's my pleasure to introduce the one in our congregation connected to this ministry, Paul Burdine, a very good friend. And I'm going to have him come up and share his story. It's an amazing story. How many of you like stories? I love stories. I can't tell stories very well, but I love to hear stories. Uh, the, the story that I want to tell you starts out around 1976, about October 1976 in San Francisco Bay Area. Um, Shane, have you got those pictures? Show the young man. This young man is a gentleman by the name of Greg Pennington. Greg was a boy in um, California, had an alcoholic father that was absentee, and uh, he had a mother that had been married three times. Um, things were not good for Greg. He was looking for a father figure. And he befriended a gentleman that lived next door by the name of John. John was a church-going deacon, um, had a great moral base at his home. Um, John was, you know, he had all the stuff in the right order. Um, devotions with his family, just everything that you would expect a Christian father to do for his family. John had a daughter named Elaine, and Elaine was a beautiful young lady that was about two years older than Greg, and unfortunately, as things go, Greg living next door and Elaine, they got a little too close and show this next picture, if you will. This, this, this kid's name is Jonathan Gregory Pennington. Um, Jonathan Gregory was born out of wedlock and being that it was the 1970s and it was not apropos for a single lady to be with child, John and Carol began seeking out a way for Elaine to be sent off to the aunt's house and uh, come back several months later, and nobody in the area knew that the child had ever been born. And they discovered something called Highlands of the Assemblies of God, which is part of what we now call Compact Family Ministries. Compact, do you know what Compact stands for? You look at it and you think, well, that's kind of a, a business name, but actually what it stands for is compassion in action. And the Assemblies of God had this Highlands home at the time where you could send an unwed mother and she would have a child, and then that child would be placed up for adoption. Meanwhile, all this is going on in California. In Wichita, Kansas, there's an associate pastor in an Assembly of God church who he and his wife had been trying to have another child and nothing was happening. And they were, they were praying. They had been praying for a long time. Nothing was working right. God had a special assignment for them to 
uproot from Wichita, Kansas, to move to Selmer, Tennessee, to pioneer an Assembly of God church. Uh, in the meantime of all that, while Elaine goes to Highland's uh, children home and delivers little Jonathan Gregory here, um, Larry and Jerry Burdine were looking for a child, and they approached Highlands. And little Jonathan Gregory here happens to be me. Jonathan Gregory was named Jonathan Gregory, then he was named Chris, then he was named Michael, and then whenever Larry and Jerry got a hold of me, he was named Paul Michael Burdine. So after all those years, um, I kind of wanted to show you a little bit more Beyond, I, I always knew growing up that I was adopted. And I always knew that I came from Highlands. But um, you ever heard of a bucket list option or item? You know, I had on my bucket list that I wanted to contact my biological family at some point. But, you know, I had a mother that was uncomfortable with it. And you always face that rejection possibility that's out there. So I knew that I wasn't going to connect with my biological family until after I had become married. So in 2001, thanks to the internet, Kara was able to get on a search engine, send about, or spend about 40 minutes, and lo and behold, she has the name of what we believe to be my biological grandmother on my paternal side. So um, I just called a phone number that I found, and I said, hey, my name is Paul. I was born on uh, July 7th, 1977, so my birthday is seven seven seventy seven, which is memorable. You know, most people can remember that. But, uh, you know, she was in Berea, Kentucky whenever I called, and I was in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, and I just about heard her scream all the way because she had been looking for me for 20-some years. And uh, she said, this has got to be a joke. I said, no, this is no joke. This is as awkward for me calling you as it is for you to receive this phone call. I said, but, you know, I'm looking for my biological family. Well, it was that weekend. They came all the way from Kentucky to our little two-bedroom apartment that we had at the college there. What's the next picture that we got there? Okay. We made the front page. Woman finds grandson after 25 years. This was uh, my grandmother. Um, her name was Janet. Uh, there's another picture there. Um, so she was, she was quite elated, if you will. Uh, God gave me about 14, 15 years to spend with her after we connected. Uh, the way that we actually found her is we knew that she had had a lung transplant through um, Vanderbilt University at the hospital. And... We knew that she was, I forgot what the criteria was, but we was able to find this lady named Janet. We knew that this lady named Janet was a spokesperson for a transplant agency, and that's how we actually found her. <clears throat> but um, the Lord, like I said, the Lord gave me about 14, 15 years with Janet after we found each other. You might be wondering about my biological, or my, my paternal father. Uh, he died in about 1981, I believe. He was a crew chief for the Marines on a uh, Sea Stallion helicopter, and they were doing some mid-air exercises over Tustin, California, and uh, they had a mid-air collision, and Greg died then. But what the really cool thing about all that is, is after Janet died, passed away, we don't want to say died, after Janet passed away, we went to Kentucky, 
to clean out the belongings and all that. And I found, this is really cool, I found in a briefcase every letter that my father had ever written my grandmother, she had saved. So I've got his handwriting. I've got his baby hair. I've got all of his report cards, all of that. It was just like the Lord said, here you go, Paul. And it was, it was a horrendous deal, the, the death and all that, what all happened. That was uh, water under the bridge at this point. But, you know, it was really cool. Oh, not only that, I was able to find family lineage all the way back into the 1700s and get like a bonnet from the 1800s whenever they're riding out on the prairie going out west, you know. Um, really cool stuff. What's that next picture there? This was the, the first reunion that we had in Kentucky. Um, so Kara and I, we, we come to a family reunion uh, over in Kentucky, and I walk into a room full of people that look just like me. And I was a good bit trimmer then, but I knew that at some point I would have this pot belly, and I knew that at some point I'm going to go bald. And, uh, but it was just a room full of buck-toothed, big-bellied people that looked just like me. <laughs> Um, that was, that was an amazing reunion right there. Uh, and we, we try to go every year now, even though, uh, Janet and Gary was her, uh, husband over here. He was a, a step grandfather, but he loved us just like we were his own. Uh, next picture. This is my mother who lives in the San Francisco area on the far left and my two sisters. I still have not had the chance to hug any of them. At some point, we're going to jump on a jet plane and fly out there. But uh, we do text and talk uh, regularly. I think I got, is there one more, Shane? No more? Okay, I thought I had one more. But um, anyway, that is, I'm going to say the nickel and dime tour of my story. My story's a long story. But uh, um, these kids that you see on these videos they're not just kids without names and faces. They're sitting in your congregation with you. They've, they've preached to you. They have uh, shared life with you, and they love you. So that's my story, Pastor. I've heard the longer version of it, and it is... Utterly amazing. I'd asked for some of the do a video of Paul, and then when we didn't get that done, I said, do you just mind doing a live presentation? Because uh, you never know how God's hand is on someone as a little baby in Highlands. It's an amazing journey, amazing journey. So without them, you would not be here. And... Uh, so that lets you know the strategic place that ministries like that have. And uh, thank you for sharing. It's, uh, it's great. Praise God. Now, all those ladies in that last picture look a little bit like you too. So the uh, DNA is pretty prominent there. Um, I'm going to share with you some thoughts from Matthew chapter 2 if you want to turn there. We're going to jump around a little bit. In two weeks is Christmas around the world. And uh, it's our way of doing a missions emphasis that 
we celebrate that we're connected to a little over 40 different missionaries and ministries that we give to every single month. Uh, from the far east of Japan, where Susan Ricketts is ministering, to uh, we've picked up Daniel and Crystal Hovey, who are heading to China. Uh, we did have a couple in China, but they have come off the field. Um, we also uh, support a couple in Indonesia, and you make your way through uh, that area westward to Nepal, to India, to Israel, to Turkey, to uh, Europe, to Africa, to Central America, South America, and also right here in Tuscaloosa with uh, Chi Alpha Campus Missionaries. So we got our hand in a lot of ministries. And it's always great to see Brother and Sister Davis, who spent 30 years in India, and uh, honor them. Thank you for your service. Amen. I got to go uh, to India with them in uh, 2010, the spring of 2010, and she was like a hawk with me. She had some hand sanitizer. Don't eat that. Don't eat that. You can eat this. Uh, here, wipe your hands. And she was like, she was just, she's been with pastors from here that go over there and don't listen to her. And they spend two or three days in the motel room, not in very good condition. So she was trying to spare me that. And I'm glad that she did because it never bothered me in any way. But uh, what a wonderful couple. Um, I want to take, I've been taking a closer look at the nativity. And we're going to look at the opening words of Matthew chapter 2. And uh, I'm going to throw two words out to you. Actually, one word in particular, a verb. Um, and we use this word all the time. We uh, use it in songs. We use it... Uh, in fact, what we do here on Sundays, we use that word. We identify what we're doing here this morning with that particular word. Um, and it's found in Matthew chapter 2, actually in verse 2. And this is about the Magi, this mysterious group of men that show up in Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews. Now, we think maybe they came from Persia, which is Iran, which is a little bit of a trip on camel. So here they are in Jerusalem, and everybody's kind of like these strangers have showed up. They, they have the appearance of, well, these are kind of affluent people and they're asking about, we, we know that the king of the Jews has been born and we just need to, anybody can help us with the location. That would stir up some interest, especially with a paranoid monarch like King Herod. So he calls, Herod calls for the scholars of that day to come in and say, can you locate prophetically from your scriptures where he's going to be born? And they put their heads together and says, yes, we believe it's Bethlehem. We believe the prophecy in the Old Testament that he will be born in Bethlehem. The one thing that these wise men said as they ask a question, where is he born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Those are the two words. We've come to worship him. Worship is the verb there. It is the commanding activity of their lives. Whatever other reason they had to come, whether it's curiosity, 
they, they had to be committed to make that kind of a long trip, not knowing the exact location, but the general location, and they're in search mode. But their motivation was to, when they found this child, it was to worship him. And this word worship is an interesting word. It's found about 54 times in the New Testament. Um, a number of times in Matthew, the most it's found is in Revelation, 22 times. And there's, we're going to touch on Revelation here in just a moment. The next most times is in Matthew. And then in John, but the concentration of that word in John is in chapter 4. You remember what happened in chapter 4? Jesus visits this uh, place in Samaria at a well, and he begins to be engaged in this conversation with this woman. And what's the conversation turn out to be? About worship. You know, we, we worship in this mountain, you worship on that mountain, and, and Jesus begins to talk to her about worship. Well, what is this word that is translated worship? I'm going to put a slide up so that you can see it um, with an English spelling to it. It's proskuneo. Now, that word is made up of two words. Pros is a preposition toward or before. It's used like in John 1, where in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, prostheos. It was like the Word was face-to-face with God. It's just not accompanying. There was a towardness. There was a connection between logos and theos. So this word is a very important word. When you connect it to kaneo, kaneo is a word meaning to kiss, to kiss the hand of. And it had this idea of someone kneeling down toward, bowing down, taking the hand of a monarch and kissing the hand in this sense of reverence, of veneration, of adoration. So this word that we're looking at, that what they came to do was that. They came to display. It just wasn't like worship with no way of knowing how that happens. It's like we're worshiping the Lord how, do we, how can someone know that you're worshiping the Lord? Can you just worship inside? To them in their culture, you could not just worship inside. The inside motivation required some kind of external activity. And this is what happens when they, later on, when they walk into the house, as you're reading there, this is verse 11 if you're in chapter 2. When they find the house, and the house is... Not a stable, so there's a little bit of time that's been, you know, spent here between the birth of Jesus and what's going on in Matthew 2. This is why when Herod asked him, says, well, what time did you see the star? And they figured it had been about two years since they saw the star. That pretty much why he says, well, the child's probably going to be around two years of age. And so this was like they had moved into some kind of residence by then. And it says in verse 11, when they came into the house, they saw the young child and Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They, they acted out their worship, which was, that's how you did it in their culture. They fell down and worshipped him. The falling down was part of worship. It was this veneration of a two-year-old. I, I think that's the most amazing picture in my mind. These men traveled for a long time to do this. When they saw him, they fell on their knees 
And then it says they opened their treasures and presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and mirth. You can always catch people on a trivia question, how many wise men were they? And people say, three. Well, we don't know if there were three. doesn't say how many. Well, they gave three gifts. Well, they gave three gifts. But we don't know if it was like three, four, five, two, seven, whatever they were. They, I mean, I, I think maybe there was a pretty good group of them carrying gold and priceless stuff as cargo for that long away to just have a safe voyage, a safe journey there, rather. So they come in and they worship, and it signifies that the seriousness of this word These men of affluence are on their knees in this house in front of a toddler, a two-year-old, king of the Jews, not where is born the one who's going to become king of the Jews. They somehow received a prophetic word from God in their study and they watch seeing the star. They, They come to the conclusion that the promised Messiah had arrived on this earth. And they came in with a seriousness about worship. And this tradition didn't just start in the New Testament. In fact, if you ever see pictures of Muslim men lined up in their time of prayer, unmatched with their shoes off, on their knees, forehead to the ground, this is how Middle Eastern worship is done. This is the seriousness of what they're doing. You go back to Daniel chapter 3 and... And Nebuchadnezzar is, is so full of himself, he, he has a statue of himself built only 90 feet tall and 9 feet in diameter. And so he's, he's just obsessed with worship, people worshiping him through this statue. And you know the story gives this order that when the band, I like the message, it says when the big band uh, starts playing music, everybody is supposed to stop what they're doing And if they're in the view of that statue, they're supposed to kneel down and worship the statue, except for three people. And Abednego, I wish I had a prize for you, Taylor. You got it right. (laughs) Three men that we're very much aware of. They refuse to do that. Why? First of all, the second commandment was not to make any graven image of anything on the earth in the heavens or in the sea, and not to bow down and worship it. But connected to what they were doing was the embrace of the gods of Babylon. Because you remember the story goes when Nebuchadnezzar brought them and rebuked them for not cooperating, not showing reverence to that statue. They pretty much said to him, we're not going to bow down and we're not going to serve your gods. It doesn't matter if you throw us into the furnace. We know our God is able to save us, but if he doesn't, we're not bowing down and we're not serving your God. There's two things there that they just couldn't go with, and that is we're not going to fit in here. We're not going to worship a statue. We're told in Scripture not to worship idols and images. And so everybody else was bowing down. This is the way they did it. They bowed down. And these three Jewish refugees who had kind of come into a high-level occupation. You know the story. God delivered him from the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar just had a really change of heart. Wow. He almost started worshiping them. Like, oh, there's four men in there. How about that? 
But it was kind of like a wake-up call to him that these men knew what worship was about and they weren't about to worship something they were forbidden to worship. You know, this is the second commandment, by the way. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And the shakat is the uh, usual, the Hebrew word for worship. It, it means literally to bow down. So bowing down was this act of worship. He says, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. I want worship from you to me, not for someone else. And the most common way was to display this falling down and worshiping, worshiping God. You know, David was a worshiper. He is a man after God's own heart. And I think, you know, look at the way music was played and the role of music in Babylon. They had all these different instruments. And when they struck up and started playing, everybody lied. You know, let's go to worship. Let's go worship the statue. And David, you know, there's no, there's no indication in Exodus and Leviticus when they're putting the temple together or the tabernacle together and they're putting all of the things they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to make. There was no reference to musical instruments. But when David came along, he introduced music as part of the worship. He wrote things like Psalm 29, verse 2, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. I really wonder if we can really worship without a sense of the holiness of God. This sense of awe. I mean, we, the last song we did was so powerful. Awestruck wonder. The very mention of his name commands us something within us to worship him, to give him our highest praise. And Psalm 72, 11 says, Yea, all kings shall bow down. Same word, Shekhat, it doesn't mean say worship, but it's all kings will bow down before him, all nations will serve him. It was not enough for David to know about God. It was about knowing God. He went after God. He longed to know God, to know his heart. And we see it when they came in, they bowed down, they worshiped Jesus And then they opened this treasure. It reminds me of a story in Genesis 24. Abraham's an old man. Now, he's really old here. He was an old man when he had, when he and Sarah had Isaac. But Sarah's passed away. And now Abraham is a very old man. Isaac is a young man, so he's really old. And he turns to his second in command. He says, um... Before I die, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Before I die, I want to make sure Isaac has a good wife. And he's not going to marry anybody from around these parts. So that is not going to happen. So I want you to hurry up, pack up some things, head back to my hometown area, find someone connected to my family, and find a wife for him. And if you track this story, it's very interesting. I'm going to mention verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 24 in just a moment. But he, he comes and he meets this young lady, and her name is Rebecca. So he's just like, I don't know whether he's uh, pressed knowing that Abraham could die any moment, and he's like, I'm on a mission here. And so he just asks her, uh, Who's your parents? Uh, what, what family do you belong to? And when she tells him the name of her family, He's like, oh, this is, this is connected to Abraham. 
he pulls out gold earrings and gold braces and put them on her. <laughs> and, and he's also got like expensive uh, apparel. Things haven't changed, have they? <laughs> you know, he's, he's brought these incentives in. And I don't know what Rebecca thought, but it says Rebecca took off and went home. But this is what the servant, Abraham's servant did. He bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. <laughs> right there after discovering, hey, I found the, the mission is starting to come together. And he even says this, the Lord has directed me to this young lady's house. And it was like boom, boom. Uh, he gave out some stuff to her family, to her mother, to her brother. He was like, I'm getting rid of all these incentives. And he took Rebecca back. But you know, when he realized that the mission was about to be successful, he worshiped the Lord. He worshiped the Lord and he declared, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham because he has shined his light upon this mission and we found a wife for Isaac. It's really neat if you want to read the rest of the story because Isaac Caesar, you know, <laughs> yes. It's no different than men showing up in Bethlehem at a house of a poor couple with a two-year-old and all they want to do is give them the best things they have. Gold and expensive spices. It was like, it, it, was, it was almost like the oil you was talking about this morning that's opening up and just pouring out on this two-year-old. The best that they had. Why? Because they were motivated by who he was. The one that they were in the presence of. They, it was, this was Emmanuel. They, was, they were kneeling in front of God with us. They knew that. And here they are worshiping. One of the great songs that has come out in, in my lifetime is by Mercy Me. In fact, they're, they're doing a movie and it's due to be released not too far from now. I can only imagine. And this, the, the movie is about the story behind the writing of that song. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. You know, we got a, we got a little bit of a picture of heaven in the Bible. In fact, the entire last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ recorded by John is principally defining what heaven is about. And I want to take you to a couple of places there. You know, um, in, the first, in the first chapter, John's describing what he's seeing and, he's, and, he, and he's hearing this loud voice and, and he turns to see and it's the glorified Jesus. It's the glorified Savior. And John said, I fell at his feet like I just died. He just was overwhelmed by the sight of the glorified Savior. He had seen Jesus many, many times, but not like this. Not with the description. This is, this is the glorified Son of God. 
the one whose radiance is blinding. And, and no wonder John just collapsed in front of him as an act of worship. John does this again in chapters 19 and 22. In 19.10, an angel is telling him some things, and he's overwhelmed by the angel. He falls down and worships the angel. And the angel tells him, don't do that. I'm I'm like you. I'm a servant of the Lord. You worship God. And over in 22, I think it's verse 8, the same thing happens. He has this feeling that he needed to worship this awe struck angel that he's seeing. The angel again tells him, don't do that. I'm like you. I'm only here to serve the Lord. You need to worship God. Don't bow down to me. Bow down to God. I want to take you to chapter 5 of Revelation. And I want you to see some things if you'll follow this with me. This is a picture of heaven. And I, I don't know how all of Revelation plays out. A lot of people think they know. I don't know if anybody really knows. It kind of becomes complicated. But in chapter 4 and 5, I want to, I want to direct your attention to a couple places. One is in verse 8, where these living creatures are just covered up with wings. They have six wings, and they're covered up with eyes, and, and, and they're saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And it's almost like these are the angels that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6, doing the same thing, six-winged angels flying around the throne day and night, never stopping, saying, Holy, holy, holy. And this is what John sees as a response to what is going on there. In verse 9, he says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the four and twenty elders, the twenty-four elders, fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, there's, there's external evidence of worship, is there not? The activity of their posture, they, they get off, they, they slide off the thrones that they are occupying. They hit their knees, they're on their faces before God. They lay their thrones at the feet of him who sits on the throne. And they say this, you are worthy, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. They were captivated by the presence of the Lamb of God. And over in chapter 5, it happens again in verse 13. He said, I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and under the sea, and that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures say amen, and the elders again hit their knees and fall down and worship him. Over in chapter 7, it happens again. I love chapter 7. You know, the Jehovah Witnesses think they're in this chapter, but they're not in this chapter. 144,000 are not Jehovah Witnesses. They come from 12 tribes of... If any of them tell you that, just ask, well, which tribe are you with? I don't know. I guess I shouldn't even brought that up. But uh, this is... I love this chapter. And, and it says that they cry with a loud voice. This is, this is a multitude of people. And they cry with a loud voice saying, Salvation, this is verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. There was a change of posture. This was showing reverence and holiness and love and adoration and veneration to him who sits on the throne, and they're not quite. They say, amen, praise and glory, wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Over in chapter 11, they do the same thing. It's almost as though John is more comfortable on his face before God than standing or sitting. And it's almost as though the main activity of the 420 elders is falling down. You know, here's what we, uh, we get into. People say, well, <laughs> well what are we going to do in heaven? Isn't that a wonderful question? It's like, it sounds kind of boring. To fall down and get up, fall down and get up, and fall down and get up. You know, Br- Brendan and I was talking. Yeah, you fit right in. Brendan and I was talking, and I says, you know, I, I, I just don't know. <laughs> My mom and dad is there. They're there. The people that we have this hope of eternal life, right? Life beyond this life. This is, this is how we cope with death in many ways, is that this is not the end. This is a vapor. You're talking about wasting life. I thought about, we're just a vapor. We're just here for a vapor. Why not use that vapor for something eternal? We're gone so quick. And yet they're there and we're like, I wonder what's, what's going on there. What are we going to do there? And I was telling Brenda the other day when we was talking about this, I said, you know, here we are. We're in a state of existence right now, all of us in this room. We're in a state of existence that we cannot see God and live. We cannot see God as he is and live. Isn't that what the Bible says? No person has seen the unveiled sight of God. Maybe Moses came closest when God says, I'll put my hand over you as I pass by, and you can get a glimpse of just What's behind me? But you can't see my face and live. How much and how long do you think it'll take for us getting used to seeing him face to face? One we can't see now. One we have no opportunity to fasten our eyes on what God looks like. But then, with unveiled faces, we're going to be recreated in the likeness of Jesus. We're going to take on the likeness of his body. He's the firstborn of the resurrection. He's the firstfruits of the resurrection. So whatever kind of body, physical body he has, we're going to have that same body. And we're going to be able to see for that very first moment God in all of his splendor and glory. No wonder I think we will be more comfortable on our faces than wondering, what are we doing next? Like it's a place of activity. (laughs) Oh, it's a place of activity. I don't think, 
I think we just have to read Revelation enough to say what a grand and glorious day that will be. Chris Tomlin wrote a song. I was going to have this song for altar time, but uh, talk to uh, Sloan and we're going to have the praise team come up and, and do Revelation song. But Chris Tomlin wrote this song. You guys can come on up. We fall down. We lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. The greatness of mercy and love at the feet of Jesus. And we cry, holy, holy, holy. We cry, holy, holy, holy. We cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. Some of you know I really love Clint Brown. If you come for prayer on Sunday night, you get a good dose of Clint Brown worship. One of the songs that's not on that, that prayer song loop that we have is Zion keeps calling me to a higher place of praise. And these are some of the lyrics of that song. It becomes my highest praise. Listen. It becomes my highest praise when all that I am responds to who you are. When everything about me realizes the wonder and the majesty, the grace and the mercy of God toward broken, lost, sinful man, for him to convict us on that particular moment that he loved us and we felt remorse for our sins. We felt a sense of repentance and crying out to him in repentance, Lord, forgive me. And the wonder and the majesty of his presence invading our lives, removing that burden, that weight off of our souls and infusing us with his very life, with his very grace, it becomes my highest praise. I want to tell you something. Worship requires one very much single activity in our hearts, and it's surrender. We cannot worship and have it our way. We have to give way. We have to be broken and spilled out like oil, like that anointment. We have to give God. And I think that's what Romans 12 is really getting at, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, willing to be spilt out, holy and acceptable to God. As some translations say, which is our reasonable act of worship. Lord, would you... Remind us this morning of your greatness. That we as sinful people had at one time an alienation from you. Could we ever praise you enough for knowing you and for you knowing us? For you wanting to know us to the point that you convicted us prompted us by your Holy Spirit to surrender our hearts to you. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room that's not sure about that. 
that the Holy Spirit will want them to know the freedom and liberty of sins washed away by your blood. Lord, may you invade a heart today that wonders, can I experience that? Can I know that? We didn't have to travel miles and miles for months and months over dusty roads and barren wilderness like those wise men because the travel was not done by us. It was done by God. He traveled to us. He came to us. Would you stand with me?